from days of long ago. From uncharted regions of the universe comes a legend. Welcome to Star Joe's Podcast, episode 129, A Conversation with Karen Travis. I'm your host, Ryan, and today, unfortunately, Chuck and Robert couldn't join me today, but thankfully, someone else was kind enough to join me for this episode, and that is the new writer on the G.I. Joe Ongoing series, uh, Karen Travis. Karen, thank you very much for joining us today. It's lovely to be with you. (laughs) And... uh, just to, because we've only had so far uh, American authors, you are actually in England right now, is that correct? Yes, I am. Yes, it's late at night here, yes. Very nice. Now, you are the new uh, writer on the G.I. Joe Ongoing, which took a, a short hiatus for a little while, which kind of worked in the story that you're that you're starting off telling. Is It kind of works in your favor, I guess, in that way. Is that correct? Uh, yes. I mean, there's, there's a five-year gap, five or six-year gap, and... Uh, that came up purely in the sort of process of kicking ideas around with John Barber, the editor. Um, I sort of said, you know, give me give me some basics. What what have I got to hit? Am I fitting in a gap? He said, well, you know, where where do you want to put it? You can even put it a little bit in the future. So I thought the handy thing about moving it forward by five years is that uh, you can you can still go back to the our original stories and pick up some threads from there but you've got an excuse for coming in with some brand new stuff because five years is a long time in world politics i mean a year is a long time but five or six years uh characters would have moved on we we left some of them at really quite stressful points in their lives uh there are others uh who will be much older in, in, the, in the broader sense five five years when you're 30 isn't an enormous period of time if you're if you're a kid uh, like Isaac Craft, then yes. you, know, you put five or six years on on that, and, and you you suddenly turn into a man. And uh, he's he's one of the he's one of the interesting characters who sort of cropped up almost by accident because I, I think as everyone knows by now, 
if I take on a franchise, it has to be one that I don't know. And I deliberately keep away from things because if I know something too well um, as a viewer or or if I've read the comics or something like that, then it's quite difficult for me. Well, difficult. It's just not possible for me to stand back as a writer and examine it the way I need to because I I was a journalist for much of my working life and I need to come to everything fresh. I need to sit down and say, right, what's going on here? Don't. Don't give me any preconceived notions. I want to interview everyone. I want to find it out, out, out for myself. I approach fiction the same way. So um, when I was asked to do G.I. Joe, I thought, well, that's great. I've not got any preconceived notions. I have no prejudices either way. I can just go in straight and do my journal job on it and get to know the characters and work out uh, what, would, what would preoccupy them, uh, what their issues are. Uh, where the organisations are, I could really do a sort of proper real-life type job. And I asked John uh, if he could just give me a cast list, you know, to give me the characters that I can choose from. So I got this uh, list of characters back, and there was a mention of Siren, the sort of uh, the the PR woman from hell. And I thought that was part of them because I did spend 10 years in PR. And I'm not saying the PR woman from hell, but I sort of know the kind of job she, she would do. Uh, and then there was a mention of, of her, of her son. And, uh, John just mentioned one line that, you know, that he, that he had been indoctrinated by Cobra and he actually threatened to kill his mother. And I thought, what a little poppet. I'm sure I can do something with him. <laughs> So that was actually the thing that was very interesting to me was the character choice that you picked because uh, when the last series ended, we had Siren and Isaac in this really tense situation of Siren really feeling like she's stuck because of her son and her son wants to stay with Cobra. Um, so I found it very interesting that you actually picked that up and that wasn't just a hanging plot thread that was still out there. Um, did you know about their situation before you picked them as a character characters to use, or was it just like a happy coincidence that happened? I mean, Siren, I didn't know about uh, okay. until I said I would quite like to use her because I mean, one of the useful things is if you've if you've if you've done the job, you can throw in some real life detail, right. and you know you can actually you, know, you can actually look at the issues that would really face someone trying to trying to be the spin doctor for an organisation yes. like that. But uh, it was just that one line from John about, well, you know, and and when Isaac was eight, he threatened to kill her. I thought, well, obviously, obviously a boy was in trouble with issues there. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I'd already started writing him and I'd drawn him out fair, in, in a fair amount of detail. And uh, I think I must have been into the second issue by the time I actually got the comic in which that happened. And it's just that one page. And I thought, yes, this is exactly what I thought this kid was going to turn into. <laughs> the bit where uh, he refuses to go with his mother and says, I'm in the safest place in the world. Um, and then he says, I know you've tried to betray Cobra. Uh, if you do it again, I'll, I, will, I will kill you myself. And then he says, but hug me now. People are watching. And I, that just said, everyone, perfect. I, you know, he, that's an eight-year-old with an astonishing brain. All right, he's probably a very sick puppy, but he's obviously yes. very, very smart, and he and he's a planner. And I thought that's my catalyst character. That's the one that's going to be lobbed into all the others, uh, whose actions will set up all sorts of problems for everyone else, will force other people to confront the issues they've got. Because obviously, on top of this, you've got five years on, uh, the world's changed. 
Cobra's decided that it's going to try a slightly different tack, that it's going to go down the statesman route. That well, I mean, to be honest, that makes sense. If you've spent billions trying to trying to defeat the Joes and you've really got nowhere, there's no point throwing any more money at it. You might as well try a different tack. So they've gone down the look with with the alternative force. Uh, yeah, we could do good in the world. We can be peacekeepers. We can do the hearts and minds job as well. And you know, governments being what what they are, you can well, I've seen it too often in real life. Uh, you know, the minute uh, someone thinks the threat's moved on, uh, they will say, right, perhaps we can make some budget savings there. And of course, that's where it opens uh, with with the GI Joe teams uh, depleted after five years, obviously because they're not as active fighting fighting their right. main uh, foe. Uh, and now they're looking at uh, being disbanded and absorbed back into other units and just generally being being told, thank you, job done, now now be on your way. Which leaves them a little bit lost because they're not the sort of unit I think that would merge easily back into others. Uh, and there's, there's almost a symbiosis that they almost need Cobra. <laughs> <laughs> as much as Cobra needs them, it's 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 a comfortable sort of war, like the Cold War. When that starts disappearing, I think people do get lost and think, "Where is the threat coming from?" It reminds me a little bit. You were talking about them needing each other. It reminds me very much, especially relating it to comics and everything. Uh, it reminds me of the Joker Batman relationship. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, Batman's classic. I, mean, I I did a series of Arkham for DC Comics. Yes. And I mean that's one of the things that Batman looks at in that because somebody says to him, "You're the problem. We wouldn't have these people if you weren't here." Sort of testing them, making them feel they have to come and sort of uh, fight because you're you're the guy they've got to beat. So why don't you go away? Right. <laughs> and, right. Uh, he he starts to worry about that and think, "Yeah, perhaps I am part of the problem." But I suppose it, that's the great thing about Batman is that he does have these mo- moments of self self awareness where he realizes that. He's got as many problems as the guys he's dealing with in, in his own way. But yes, I mean, um, it's interesting how people fall into that sort of thing. Uh, it is, I suppose it's better the enemy you know than the one you don't. I mean, for those yes. of us who, who do remember the last Cold War, right. it was it, it was actually quite tired, tired and orderly. You knew where the trouble was coming from, and you knew that it could only go so far. I mean, ever, ever since the threats became very very fragmented. Not only do you not know where they're coming from, you don't know when they can blow up in months. I mean, we're sort of seeing that in the the Middle East. I mean, how do you plan for that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And well, and I'm, uh, to give you some background, uh, I'm uh, a child of the 80s. I I grew up in 75, so I was five years old to 10 years old, right in that 80s time period. So I might not have been fully aware of everything that was going on in the world, but certainly the Cold War played a big factor during that time period. So, um, now, I found it very interesting that you pick stories uh, or or properties or, or directions based on not knowing anything mm. about them. Uh, I find that very fascinating because I think I even read, and you can correct me if this is not a true thing, because I did read on your website sometimes things that other people write are not total facts. Uh, <laughs> to put it mildly, <laughs> I probably well, something more fiction than I actually write. That's what <laughs> But I did read that you jumped onto Gears of War because you saw the trailer and that inspired you to want to go in that direction. So was G.I. Joe kind of similar to that where you just, you knew the name but really knew nothing else 
So it fascinated you to say, yeah, let me go ahead and give my give a try at this. It was a slightly different thing. I mean, Gears, Gears was a one-off. That's the only time that it's ever happened to me. I saw the trailer in, I think it was 2006 when the first game came out. I didn't know what it was. It distracted me for a moment. I was mesmerized by it. It was the Mad World trailer. Uh, and I didn't even connect it with what I was asked to do. I was asked if I, a couple of years later or whatever if I would, if I would work on Gears, and I basically contacted Jerry, Jerry at Penny Arcade and said, look, I can't tell you what it is, but if I said Gears to you, what would you say to me? And he said, well, it's Travis Town. And so I thought, oh, well, I'd better have a look. And that's when I went onto YouTube and saw the trailer and thought, this this was made for me, and, and it actually was. I mean, that was one of those rare things. It was the perfect storm. I mean, I also don't want to spend all the time talking about Gears because we're talking sure. about G.I. Joe, but, I mean, that that was a one-off, and I knew at the time that was something that would only happen once in my life that would never happen again. It was weird and wonderful, and, you know, that's, that, that, that hasn't happened with, with anything else. The thing about G.I. Joe is that it, that really is an icon, it is part yes. of the language. I mean, every single franchise believes it's part of the fabric of the universe. You should have <laughs> to believe that in a way. Right. Uh, but when people use the phrase uh, and they actually haven't even seen the product, you, you know you know that that means something. I mean, yes. from our point of view in the UK, Action Man, I heard even, even this week, I heard somebody on the TV, a woman in her 20s, saying, oh, Santa is Action Man. I guarantee she's never even seen Action Figure, but she yes. knew what Action Man was and she knew the whole ethos that went with it. In the same way that G.I. Joe became it became part of part of the language in the States, Action yes. Man is part of the language of the UK, even for people who've never seen it, never read the comics, never seen the action figure, possibly haven't even seen the movies. And yes. that actually tells you something because it's it's about an archetype. It's about uh, the archetype of service, and I think that was very powerful. Um, I must admit, I'd never read the comics. Okay. I knew about Larry Harmer, uh, so I, I, I knew it. I knew it had come from pedigree stock. Let's put it that way: that it had right. been written by people who knew what they were talking about, yes. which which was which was fairly powerful because you want to know you're a good fit for the franchise. I basically do realist stuff. I'm a journalist by background. It's all I know how to do. You will never catch me doing fantasy. I haven't got that sort of mind. What I do is I look at a situation and go, what if? You know, what if that were real? Uh, and that's the way I approach every franchise that I do. I say, right, this isn't this this isn't a fairy story. This isn't made up. I, this is a real situation, and I'm going to treat it as if it's real. I'm going to behave as if this is a real thing that I'm reporting on and I'm going to get the characters to talk and it's all, and, and it is all the characters. That's the thrill of it is you don't know what you're going into and you don't know the characters that are going to take you. And I certainly felt, felt that with G.I. Joe, that there was an enormous scope in it. And of course, once I started looking at it and once friends found I was doing it, and friend, friends I didn't know were G.I. Joe fans. <laughs> they said, oh, I was brought up on that. Oh, my God, have you seen this? Oh, have, yeah, have, 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 have you seen that one? We're going to have to send this up to send them. They got really excited about it. And I thought, there's, there's, there's something really powerful going on here. And then when I went back and read some of the comics, I thought, wow, you know, there is... You know, these people have really pushed the boundary of what you can, the stories you can tell in a comic, because a lot of it is very uncomfortable reading for people. 
Yes. So I, I will say that the fact that you approach it from a realistic point of view is a welcome breath of fresh air into G.I. Joe, because I think a lot of the fans around my age, who are probably the ones buying the comics anyways, have been wanting us uh, wanting IDW to get back to that realism, because they, they did start that way, and then in the recent times it's kind of gone a little bit more superhero-ish, and... Uh, when I read the first issue, I was like, wow, this is very gritty, this is very real, and I absolutely loved it, and I know our fans will love that as well. So I, I love that that you took it from that approach. Now, were there any characters that you wanted to use that you couldn't? No, I don't think there were any characters that were off-limits. I effectively asked for a shopping list, and uh, I I asked were, were there any I had to pick up on, um, and we just went through... Where, where they had last been. So I sort of bound everything into a book and just went through picking out who looked vaguely interesting. Uh, some of them had pen pictures with them so that I you know, sort of knew how far their storylines had gone. Um, I'm fairly limited in what I can say because I, I, I was about to volunteer some information which will really spoil issue two, so I better not say it. Uh, but there, are, there, there was a character that I brought back from what I would call the distant past who will make a lot more sense when you see him. One from the last series, uh, I was basically trying to use as many characters as I could that had already been covered. Um, I do normally create a lot of new characters for IPs because that's what I do. I, I am, I'm basically a character builder. But I wanted to keep it to a minimum because it is such an enormous cast but where there are gaps in the story where you actually need a certain role fulfilled and you can't find someone, then you've really got to make your own up. I mean, there were the locals for uh, the uh, border country where the Joes find, find themselves fairly near the start of the story. I was also short of a spy. And it's just dreadful. I can't operate without a spook. I've got to have one. So I had to build my own name out of, out of cardboard boxes and glue. Um, but... I suppose I was spoiled for choice. I mean, you could you could take five, you could basically do a lucky dip, write the characters' names on a piece of paper, put them in a hat, pull out five, and you could put a story together out of it. I mean, that that's that's the fun of it is that you don't know, you, you know, that you can do that with an IP. Uh, you can just take the cards as they fall and just think, right, you know, you know, you can almost make a sort of consequences game out out of it and extrapolate from there. I mean, there's there's a lot in common with the way I write, with how you build a game, is basically if you've got the characters, then you just put them in the environment and see where they go. But I do that with my own fiction too. Uh, I spend all my time building uh, the characters. You know, I've got to know exactly who they are. I've got, I, I have to know them well enough to be able to go and do their shopping in the supermarket. You know, you know that sort of thing. You just have right. to be able to get yourself into their head. So whether they're characters you've inherited and you've developed a bit, uh, like I've done with some of the Joe characters you know they're not necessarily as they used to be many years back i've i've updated one of them or if it's a character that you've built from whole cloth you basically well, once you're in their head and you know the other characters heads then once they get together they then start creating the, the plot and this this is the real thrill of it this is the real fun with the series is that i don't know where it's going to end Right. I've got a rough idea when I start. I think I know where it's going to go. But then the characters will do something, or something will happen. You think, oh, perhaps I threw that in there. And it almost becomes like a tabletop exercise. Uh, if you've been in the emergency services or emergency planning or the armed forces, you'll have done these tabletop exercises whereby you basically 
you're sat in a room and you're acting out what you would do in a real emergency. And that's almost the way you, uh, I end, end up writing is you're sat there and then the die staff, which is obviously also me, will come in and sort of say, right, now you've had this disaster. You know, that's blown up. That's on fire. What are you going to do now? And if you then factor that in with the characters, you have got your running series. I mean, you're never short of something to write. Did IDW give you any direction that they wanted you to go in or was it completely up to you? It was completely up to me. And uh, I mean, there, are, there are basically two ways of doing these things. You can either say to an IP, where, where do you want me to end up? You know, uh, Often if you're doing something between films or between games, then you say, like, what end point have I got to hit? Because what they're... Basically, what they pay me for is is, is is to come up with the stories. It isn't like a, a movie novelization where you're fairly tied to the plot you've got. But with this, it, it was, you know, where, where, where do you want to take it? So I think the, uh, the trick is, as I say, once you've got the characters, is not to look too far ahead, but just say, where are they now? And then get them to uh, basically tell, tell the story to you. I obviously have to start off with an outline, so I would give John an outline of where I thought the story was going to go, and he says, yes, fine. Okay. Um, and then you find as you're writing it that other things just happen, and I say, well, actually, that shifted a bit. And now, fine, he says, that's great. So one, one of the interesting things is that working with Steve Kerr, I said to him at, at one point, do you want me to tell you what's happening in the future, in the future issues? Because I'm obviously a little bit ahead of the artist. Right. Uh, or do you want to come to it cold? And he said, I want to come to it cold. So I've got almost the reader experience of it. Ah, okay. so, so that's fun. Sure. Was there anything in particular that you did to prepare for writing G.I. Joe? In terms of preparation, um, I did plunge into it, to be honest. As I, say, I, just, I just tend to go from what I call the script level. If I, if I, if I were doing a game because story bibles are not necessarily uh, always available with, with IPs, I will say, okay, just tell me who the characters are, a little bit about them, and roughly roughly what timeline they're in. Now I will come up with something and then uh, give it to the IP and then they will bounce back. I mean, you could, you could spend forever reading the G.I. Joe comics and it wouldn't necessarily get you any further forward because I found something really good that a friend of mine said, oh, such and such happened to such and such a character. And I thought, oh, that's just what I need. I found it was in the wrong continuity. It was in the Marvel days. And I thought, oh, damn, I've lost it. Um, so, you know, you can end up taking yourself down down the wrong path. If you if you look at what I call the salient points, which is uh, the pen pictures of the characters and the, and the most recent stuff, you get a flavour. And it's really the flavour that you need to go with, the vibe. And I think once I got into, into the vibe... God, that's, that, that makes me sound like a child of the 60s. Honestly, that's just all, all, all vibe. Never mind. That's a good word that's, that, that needs to be brought back into general use. Once I picked up the vibe, the sort of uh, atmosphere of it, the rest was just slotting stuff in. And that's another good thing about working with Steve because he's been doing it for so long. He will say, oh, uh, there's that character who can do that. Or did you know that he had this, that, or, or the other? And he's got all that small detail. Um, it's... In terms of volume, it's a lot less work for me this series because what I'm used to doing is, when I work with an artist, is to give them enormous uh, art files. I will get visual references for every single panel. I've, okay. I've come from a TV background as well, so I'm used to doing storyboards, I'm used to doing redirected scripts. 
So I frequently in the past on comics, you know, in these massive folders on yeah. on the FTP to the artist and saying like, you know, where I describe that building there, this is this is the brickwork. This is what the brick looks like. <laughs> uh, with with Steve because he's been doing it so long, not only do I not need to go and find out what things look like. Um, in the GI Joe, he can actually suggest things and say, well, you know, there is such and such a uniform you could use, etc., etc. And that, and that's fun. I, I like, I like to work closely with the art, artist. Um, you like to write to their strengths. The really good thing is that that there's a storytelling element here here as well. Uh, Steve isn't just um, you know fo- following following the art direction. He's actually coming back and saying, how about this? How about doing that? I've got this. What do you think of this picture, et cetera, et cetera? Very nice. Since we're at the very early stages of the story, any teases that you can give that might excite Joe fans, again, without revealing too much? Yeah, it's, it's actually very difficult to safely tease anything, <laughs> to be honest. Um, there are a couple of characters who you will see come back, one from the distant past, one from the fairly recent past, in a, in a very different uh, in, in, a, in a very different context, shall we say. Um, I'm just trying to think what I've said in interviews in, in, in the trade press. I might well have let some of this slip, but I haven't said which characters it is, so I'm just going to play safe here. Uh, one thing you will see, one thing I can safely say, is uh, Paul Scarlett having been very hands-on and now being uh, in the command role is finding it very frustrating being sat at the end of the radio. Okay. Um, you know, as as things start to unravel, as they always do, she really is starting by issue four to find it very very hard to sit there and take <laughs> it. She wants to be out there. She wants to go and sort things out. The other thing is, uh, every every single character in the series believes they're doing the right thing for patriotic reasons. They're all completely at each other's throats, right across the board. Whether that's Cobra whether it's the Joes, whether it's the other US agencies, whether it's allies, uh, whether it's the locals uh, in the uh, border country of Schletterva, uh, they all believe they're doing it for the right reason. There are no moustache-twirling villains. They're all absolutely earnest. But they're all also completely coming from opposite directions and going, and going to opposite places. And that's a really interesting thing for me, is to, is to bring out the fact that... Uh, this is all grey areas. This, you know, human beings, you think, seem to all fairly similar. And, you know, we are 99% wired the same as well. You'd think at some point in our lives, you know, we've all managed to work out that there is a, you know, there's a fairly simple way to stay out of trouble and not to end up killing each other. But we're never going to do that. And it's just interesting to break that down and see how it happens on the individual level. And this is very much about decisions that individual people make for what seems like perfectly good reasons to them that just got horribly wrong and have massive consequences for entire countries. G.I. Joe will return after these messages. Hey, I'm Gary. I'm Mike. I'm Chuck. And I'm Justin. Join the four of us every week on the Internet's number one and longest-running G.I. Joe podcast, What's on Joe Mind? It's Joe News, reviews, and interviews like you've never heard them before, delivered right to your MP3 player. Our guests include Jason Marsden, Kevin Michael Richardson, and Matt Yang King from G.I. Joe Renegades, Larry Hama, Robert Atkins, and John Barber from IDW Publishing, and many more from around the online Joe community. Yeah, it's guys talking about Joe. Think of it as Joe Talk meets Sports Talk. And we make fun of Chuck. Right, and we 
Hey, again? Come on, Chuck. We're just kidding. Kinda. Sometimes Chuck makes fun of himself. Right, and we... Okay, seriously, this is just getting ridiculous now. It's What's on Joe Mind every week on the GeekCast Radio Network, InsidePulse.com, Stitcher Smart Radio, and iTunes. Download and listen today. I suppose I still can't say something about Transformers, can I? Come Good. On, no. What about sports? That sounds yeah, good. Yeah, that's all right. Now, back to G.I. Joe. Now, you have your own books uh, out there. There's one called Going Gray. For those interested in reading other things by you, what is this book about? Uh, like, the character of Ian sounded interesting to me. So, can you give our listeners, like, an idea of what this Going Gray book is all about? Yeah, Going Gray is uh, is a techno thriller. It's the first of a new series. Um the G.I. Joe angle was fairly strong because uh, there's at least one scene in it where the two main characters, who one one is a former Royal Marine, the other is a former National Guardsman, uh, and they're both now working as private contractors. And they're discussing kids because one of them's, uh, the Royal Marine Rob has got a teenage son and Mike, who is the, wealth, the wealthy son of an even wealthier senator, desperate to have kids and hasn't been able to have them so they're watching they're they stop in the diner on the way home and they they watch this kid playing with a gi joe <laughs> and they start talking about it and saying did that you know did you have one as a kid you know did it make any difference to this urge to enlist and of course then rob starts going on about action man and it was really funny because not long after I'd finished that scene, I mean, it was literally right on top of it, I got the email from John Barber <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I, I claim my product placement for that. I've just done a G.I. Joe scene. And it was it was actually terribly funny because uh, it just proved what an arch- archetype it was. And I went through the rest of the book, the number of times I'd used the phrase action man as well. It's just past the language. So uh, I know people will look at it and think, oh, well, you know, She's obviously plugging her other product there, but no, it, 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 it was entirely separate and really all the funnier for that. Um, again, Going, going Grey is a real-world story, but there's a sort of, uh, I won't say supernatural element, there's there's a sort of borderline fringe science element in it, which I, I did actually start out intending to make this a sort of comic-type parable, a kid who has superpowers. What are superpowers like in the real world? They're not much fun. Um, right. This is about a, a kid who doesn't know he's a shapeshifter. He he thinks he's mad. This is Ian. He yeah. knows every time that he looks in the mirror, he doesn't see the same face, and he thinks he's got some really serious psychological problem. He's been raised in a remote uh, part of Washington State on a farm where he doesn't get to see anyone by a woman he thinks is his grandmother. And he's going through life, and he's about 15, 16 when the book opens, and he's thinking, what kind of life am I ever going to have? I'm never going to meet girls. I'm never going to get off this farm i am obviously nuts oh what's going to happen to me and then his grandmother dies and mm. that's when all hell breaks loose but basically and that's when he runs into uh rob and mike and it is basically about uh how he comes to terms with what he is and how he he is pursued by the company uh that basically wants its property back because he's a result of a genetic experiment he doesn't know it the company doesn't know that, uh, that their property's been taken, and then they find out like 20 years later. So that's what happened. We want this back. So it is, it is basically a thriller, but 
a lot of it is about identity and it's about the identity of, of men and a lot of it is about military identity you know why people serve why they bond why they stick together it is quite interesting that going gray is in fact looking at very similar themes uh, to what underpins gi joe which is about the the archetype of of uh being a man and military service. Now, okay, I know in GI Joe we've got a lot of female characters, but for the, but in terms of going grey, we are talking about men and you know, struggling with their identity in a changing world. Uh, anyway, that is the first of a series, and uh, basically they they form the three of them end up forming this uh, this company. Uh, they go off and do interesting jobs, shall we say, and we will. We will see how Ian uses his odd skills, uh, which you see revealed in the book. I also saw that you have a collection of short stories from your past called View of a Remote Country, available in Kindle form. Uh, the stories were very unique, and especially I was especially intrigued by the aging demon facing retirement story. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? this collection of stories? Yeah, the, uh, the short story uh, collection... Um, that was really stuff that I'd written more than 10 years ago, some of it 14 years ago, and I hadn't looked at these stories for many years. Uh, I gave up writing shorts as soon as I sold my first novel series. And when I look back on it, I couldn't remember some of them. And I was surprised at the different things I'd tried. I mean, I vaguely remembered the stories. I thought, oh, yeah, I remember doing that at Clarion, and I remember this, that, and the other. Um, I was surprised how many fantasy stories I'd done. As I say, I'm not, I'm not really a fantasy writer, but when I looked at them again, they were very much based in the real world. As you say, uh, there's the demon uh, who ends up in an old folks' home and how he copes with that, or doesn't, as the case may be. We usually close our interviews with a set of quick questions that we call rapid-fire these are simple this or that questions usually. Uh, you can feel free to answer them however you'd like. Uh, you can describe your reason or not. It's totally up to you. So with that, the first question I have for you is G.I. Joe or Cobra? That's a difficult one. Um, <laughs> I feel really sorry for Cobra in a way because uh, yeah, some of them do make sense about 5% of the time. And uh, yeah, that would be a difficult one. I mean, if I... If I take sides, then that means I can't write it. So I have to say I'm neutral and I see some arguments on both sides, which I do. Okay, and then this one, it actually comes from my co-host Chuck, who couldn't be here, and myself. We have a debate oftentimes about the leadership of G.I. Joe and, and who we prefer. And this seems to be a debate with a lot of G.I. Joe fans. So do you have a preference between Duke or Flint? I don't. I don't have any preference, actually. I mean, Flint's obviously leading them in the in the first issue, so uh, he's still there. Um, I better not say anymore because I, I don't want to <laughs> totally spoil issue two for you. Understandable. Understandable. Outside of GI Joe, do you have any favorite toy properties from the eighties? No, I don't. To be honest, um, <laughs> God, I, I'm possibly the world's most boring person. Uh, I don't have any. Uh, I mean, I, I cannot even remember anything uh, by way of toy properties from the 80s. I'm just casting my mind back. No, I'm sorry. I, I, I really am a robot, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm just this <laughs> robot that writes books. Um, unless you count the clangers, of course. That's very British. <laughs> <laughs> These questions don't always revolve around what we cover. So with that in mind, if you were choosing a muffin, which would you pick? 
blueberry or chocolate chip? I'd, I'd definitely go for blueberry. Um, I'm not I'm not very fond of sweet things in, in any way, but chocolate is guaranteed to turn me off of anything. Um, it's the one thing that can stop me drinking coffee. If anyone <laughs> puts, if, if anyone sprinkles chocolate on it, I'm just finished. I'm going to pour it away. And this might be a tough question since you just said you're not big on sweets, but do you have a preference between cake or pie? I'd probably go for pie because at a pinch, I um, I do quite like things like French flan, you know, the sort of custard, uh, sort of solid custard in a, in, a, in a thin pastry base or baked cheesecake. Since you've done some work on video game properties, do you have a favorite video game property? That's what you mean by favorite. Um Remember, if I say what I like best, I'm I'm talking as a writer uh, sure. rather than as a player, and it's a very different experience because you're looking for something different when you're writing. Uh, you're looking for what gives you satisfaction as a writer, and it would have to be Gears. I mean, there's nothing like Gears. Okay. Uh, I've, I've worked on quite a few game properties, but, uh, I mean, Gears, I've said at the time, and I've never seen fit to change my mind on it. It was special, and it was unique. And last but not least out of the firing range questions, as a child, what was your dream job? I wanted to be a journalist. And then I got <laughs> a wish. Uh, so all I can say is be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> I never set out to be a novelist. I mean, that was that was never my ambition. Um, I did it because I wanted to get out of the job I was in. I'd, I'd ended up in um, you know, PR, uh, political PR, shall we say. I spent 10 miserable grinding years in it. If I had a better lawyer, I would have got off with seven, as people tell me. Um, <laughs> and towards the end of it, I was on a management training course, and um, it was you know, designed to take us to the next level of uh, management. And uh, they provided a career consultant to help us do this. And I sat down with this excellent guy, Malcolm McGreevy. I've never forgotten him. And I said, I'm wasting your time, man. So I just, I don't want to do this job. I want out. I'm just wasting your money. He said, no, no, he said, your employer's paid for this. Let's, let's make the most of it. And um, he said, have you got any hobbies? And as you know, I'm the world's most boring woman. I'm a serious workaholic. And I just, we just couldn't find anything else I'm going to do. I didn't want to go back to newspapers. I didn't want to go back to television. He said, you know, do you do anything remotely interesting? I said, well, <laughs> sometimes I write fiction for fun. I said, I've done that since I was a kid. He, said, he just looked at me and he said, have you never thought of just doing it as a business? He said, you know, you've written for a living all your working life. Why don't you just try that? And it seemed like a good idea. So I just sat down and did a business plan. I did my research, did my business plan, set a few targets, and that was it. It's, it's an awful thing to tell people that because most people who <laughs> want to write fiction not to write a novel it's an emotional thing they really want to do it uh you know it's it, it's an ambition it's their dream job I and mean, if someone like me you know robot travis does and says well actually i did it because <laughs> i wanted to get out of my last job you know and i made myself a novelist they're just horrified because it takes all the romance out of it i still put the same into it you know when i write i write absolutely flat out I put every ounce of effort in, in, into it. I'm, I'm in another world when I'm writing. I step right in, into it. But it is a job. Yep. I'm not sure what else I'd do because I think, you know, I've been writing for so long. Um, <laughs> I'm really not sure I'm much good for anything else, although well, I'm quite quite good at accounts. Um, so this is it. I mean, this is probably this is probably where I'm going to be, unless I run away to join the circus or, or something. Uh, this, is probably, this is probably the job I'm going to end up, end, up, end up doing for the rest of my life. Okay, well, that's all the questions I had here for you. How can people find you and follow your work? 
yeah, if uh, people want to uh, uh, sort of keep up to speed what I'm doing, look at some of my books. Uh, my website is uh, KarenTravis.com. Uh, or there's an even simpler way of doing it. Go to KarenTravis with two S's.com and sign up for the newsletter. And uh, I just keep people informed by email of when new stuff's out. Okay, Karen. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show again. It, it was awesome having you on here. I really, really appreciate it. Um, looking forward to uh, seeing what you do with G.I. Joe. Like I said, I was very excited once I saw issue number one and, and got to read through that. I know our listeners, like I said, they've been looking forward to something with a, a lot more realism to it, and it's, it sounds like that's exactly what you're bringing to the story. So uh, possibly down the line, we'll reach out to you again. Once there's been some story arcs that have gone on, maybe, maybe we can have you on again and you can uh, talk a little bit more freely about what, <laughs> what was happening during that time period and what your thoughts were behind it. But uh, for those of us, uh, for those of you out there that want to listen to us, uh, you can find us at starjoes.com. You can find us at the forumforgeeks.com where you can interact with us every day. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook at Star Joes. Uh, you can like us on Facebook and you can follow us on Twitter, which is at Star Joe's Podcast. You can email us at Star Joe's Podcast at gmail.com and find us on iTunes. Uh, it's uh, just look up Star Joe's and please leave us a review. Uh, we would greatly appreciate that. You can also leave us a voicemail. It's, the number is 440-941-JOES, 440-941-JOES. And uh, you can leave us a voicemail. We'll play it on a future episode and respond to it. So, with that, I'll go ahead and close by saying the Force will be with you because knowing us is half the battle. We'll talk later. Thanks. Good night. It's on the reflexes.